Hello, deserving listeners. It's just me today. I want to remind everyone that soon we will be switching the feed to another situation, and I don't know how to say it in the technical language other than to warn everyone that if you don't get episodes on your podcast app as you usually get them, there's there's a chance you'll need to unsubscribe and resubscribe to the to the podcast feed. I'm not exactly sure. It's all in the effort of uh, including advertisements on the podcast by uh, some outfit that does this for us. And uh, so I'm, and I have to hand over the controls to them to some extent. And so they may screw everything up for us. And so I just want to uh, warn everyone and, and we'll get through this together. But uh, I would really worry about some people somehow having trouble accessing the podcast. So uh, over the next month or two, this is July 2016, over July and August, if something goes wonky, let me know. Or just unsubscribe, resubscribe is just my guess as to what would work. The premium feed will remain the same. YouTube will remain the same. The podcast, everything will remain the same except for the regular feed on your podcast app. Also, I want to start creating more podcasts more frequently. You know, the whole reason why I want to monetize the podcast is so I can dedicate more time to it. If I'm going to take money away from, if I'm going to take money and time away from my regular job to do the podcast, I need to pay the bills. You know, I... I got bills to pay people, and advertisements may help with that. Patreon is, you know, all you patrons are definitely helping in that respect. I also want to help pay the co-hosts and the guests and that kind of thing because they deserve to be compensated at least something. So uh, it's all in the eff effort of that. I've received some emails from people saying that they're worried about advertisements, and, you know, frankly, I am too. I really just don't know what I'm doing. If anyone else knows how to do this sort of thing, I'd be glad to entertain other options. But to tell you the truth, I've been looking a lot of a lot of options regarding monetization of the podcast and, and advertisements and all this stuff. And I just have to say, it's very frustrating, and there's not a lot of options. And it's I just don't know who to talk to or where to go. And so this outfit contacted me and said, you know, we'll do your advertisements for you, and you know, we'll take a cut, of course, but. You know, we'll we'll take care of all of it for you. You won't have to think about a thing. It's easy, easy peasy, and that definitely appeals to me. So, uh, the same way that Patreon takes care of all of our you know monthly pledgers, I don't have to deal with any of that stuff. Patreon takes a cut, of course, and they deal with that all. Uh, you know, they deal with all that that side of things. And so, you know, so some people are emailing and saying they're worried about the advertisements, perhaps clashing with some of the values that this podcast holds along with the listeners. You know, for instance, say some ad gets put on the beginning of one of our episodes that has some sexist or racist or who knows. I mean, it could it could literally be an ad for Trump. I mean, now that I think about it, it could be a Trump campaign ad, you know, not to hack on on Trump supporters, but uh, I, I personally, uh, well, I guess, frankly, I, I wouldn't want any of the candidates to to 
advertise on my podcast. That would be abhorrent to me. Having said that, uh, if I'm going to do this, I think I have to completely hand things over. I think I might have some control over it, but my guess is, is that I don't. And so the thing that I'm that I'm thinking is, well, we'll just see how this goes. If everything goes horribly, then I can obviously pull the plug and just go back to normal. But the way to think about it is when you watch a video on YouTube, YouTube just picks a random ad and, and you know, if you've seen ads on YouTube, they don't, the, the, I have videos on YouTube, for instance, and I don't get to choose the ads that precede the, the episode. And the podcast, you know, could be preceded by all sorts of ads uh, and has been. And as listeners, I would hope that you would know that I'm not associated with the selection of those ads. And it's the same as we move forward. When you hear an ad in the podcast, I, you know, it's, it's totally separate from the podcast. I don't in personally endorse the things that are advertised on YouTube before my episodes. And in the same way, I, I'm not personally endorsing any of the things that are advertised on the, on the podcast feed. That the thing that I think people uh, sometimes don't realize is they listen to podcasts, as I do, and sort of expect everything to be free. There are podcasts that are like This American Life that are funded by millions of dollars, I think, and have uh, just a, a, you know, they're not rolling in dough, but but they have a lot of donations, a lot of subscribers, and they have public funding, I believe, through through their radio station. Again, I have no idea if that's true, but but some some podcasts have have a stream of money. For the rest of us people that are podcasting, like myself, there is there's zero money, you know. And I've managed to get Patreon to pay for it, but I mean, pledgers through Patreon. <laughs> patrons through patreon to play for it so I'm, I'm lucky in that respect but but most podcasters are doing it completely for free and on their own time and i've been doing this for eight years and i just have to say like at a certain point you just have to say like wait a second i i'm i'm providing a service to a to a large group of people can i perhaps be compensated a little bit for my time and the advertisements are an easy way to make that happen. It's a passive way uh, for the vast majority, because, you know, we have tens of thousands of, of listeners and we only have a small percentage of those people are our patrons. And so the vast majority of our listeners don't, don't pay anything. And so to make that work in today's world, I guess we have to add advertisements. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just the reality of the situation. I, if I could figure out a different way, and believe me, I have tried. I mean, it's been, it's been eight years of me like trying in a very haphazard, incompetent way to monetize this podcast. So this, when this showed up at my door, I just said, "Yeah, I guess that is going to work for us." Again, it might not work. We'll we'll, we'll see. And I, I apologize if everything's go if everything goes horribly wrong. Okay. So along those lines, I want to start making more frequent episodes, and today I want to start with an episode re, uh, in which I respond to a patron email, and let me just read it. It's about her experience in therapy. 
So this is an, an anonymous patron writing in, and she says, Hi, Kirk. I would like to get your view on my situation with my now ex-therapist. He got frustrated with my attitude in session recently, which made me feel extremely guilty and misunderstood. So I decided I would not, I would stop seeing him. She said, so I, so I decided I wouldn't see him anymore. Now I am devastated thinking I will never see him again. So again, just backing up, just to make sure you caught this. He got frustrated with her attitude in a session, and then she felt misunderstood by him. And so she terminated their relationship, and she goes on to describe more here. And, and now she feels you know, bad about terminating, and she's confused about what to do. She says, and I'm completely lost about what to do next. I started seeing him two years ago for anxiety, and the first few months were great. We went over the mechanic of anxiety, and he, and he helped me understand it, which helped me a lot. Once this chapter was over, he asked me if I wanted to continue therapy and try to figure out what had caused it. Because I have always had a tendency for being depressed, even as a child, and I always knew I would someday have to face these things, I agreed to the therapy. I loved my therapist, so I figured it was a good time for it. I must say I am a very hard person to work with, or at least I believe so, because I struggle with a lot of uh, I struggle a lot with opening up and trusting people. She struggles with with trusting people. My therapist has mentioned many times over the past months that I had to trust him and open up more for him, and to be able to uh, in order for him to help me, which I get. I felt like I was trying and getting there slowly but I always felt like he was getting frustrated because it was very slow progress. He did lose his patience a few times, and this recent session was the last straw for me. I must mention a few things about me. I have issues trusting people and opening up, especially with men. When I was young, my dad had aggressive behaviors and would grab us very hard by the arm to punish us and send us to our rooms, leaving marks on our arms. He wouldn't beat us up or anything, but he would always yell at us, sometimes to a point where we couldn't even understand what he was saying. I remember being scared of him sometimes and having thoughts of him attacking my family or even killing us. I never quite understood these thoughts, which I feel like were quite extreme. Anyways, I feel like this probably has something to do with my defenses toward my therapist. I have never been able to fully express myself and accept who I am, I've always felt like I had great parents, but lately realized they were emotionally, uh, they were never emotionally supportive. Today, amongst other things, I deal with abandonment issues, anxiety, depressive moods, low self-esteem, addictions, and I feel like I could be codependent too. To add to this, I have been with my boyfriend for four years and have seen many similarities with him and my dad. My boyfriend is controlling. He tries to decide things for me and tells me what I should or shouldn't do. He is sometimes emotionally abusive, treats me like I'm the best, and then snaps on me whenever I don't meet his expectations. He has outbursts where he says I'm not important to him, that I can't do anything right, and I am the worst girlfriend. And he doesn't care about my feelings unless they impact him. I feel like he might have some narcissistic tendencies. I have been trying to leave him for months now, seeing a direct link with his relationship and my anxiety. However, when I try, 
my boyfriend tells me he will break things in our apartment or not leave or whatever he can do to make me scared and not leave. Okay, so here's my issue, getting back to my therapist. My therapist has been trying to help me work on my issues and pushing me toward leaving my boyfriend, which is what I want to do eventually. I smoke a lot of marijuana because without it, I can't function, especially at home. I feel intense negativity around my, boy, around my boyfriend and his energy, uh, and his energy just crushes me. My home situation is too hard for me to handle, even with my antidepressants. I understand I shouldn't be smoking when in therapy and, and have been trying to stop with the help of my therapist and acupuncture. Because my boyfriend smokes too, it is very hard to quit. My therapist has been frustrated with me and the situation, frustrated with me in the situation, and said many times I need to stop and get motivated and help myself more or he can't help me. And I get that. So during this last session with my therapist, I just didn't care about being there and I was acting very detached. This made my therapist frustrated. He told me it was my life and he was, and he was frustrated because he seemed to care more about my life than I did. I basically didn't say anything for the rest of the session and I just cried for the remaining time. I felt like he didn't want me there. I completely shut down on him. Feeling like he has no patience for me, for me anymore, I decided to terminate the therapy. I didn't get to say goodbye, and I feel like he just hates me now. I feel extremely lonely and have been crying so much since then. He was important to me, and now I have nobody to talk to about my issues. He didn't even answer my email saying I didn't wish to reschedule, and now I'm convinced he never really cared. I, I just want to repeat that sentence because I said it weird. <laughs> He didn't even answer my email saying I didn't wish to reschedule, and now I'm convinced he never really cared. I wish it didn't end this way and had the chance, and I had the chance to say goodbye. There are so many things I wish I had said and that I couldn't push myself to say in session. I wish we could talk about it and I could explain my decision and frustration to him, but I already told him I wasn't coming back. What do you think? Well, I replied to the anonymous patron. I, in a nutshell, I, I told her that it's normal to have this happen from time to time in therapy. There's nothing strange about it, really. Sometimes we have what we call a relationship rupture, and there's a lot of literature on the topic and how to repair a relationship rupture. Relationship ruptures happen all the time, whether they're minor or major. This one is, you know, in the major category. And it's an opportunity for the therapy to progress. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a bad thing, but it's, a, it's an opportunity for the relationship to deepen and, and for healing to occur. They uh, are wonderful opportunities for clients to experience a corrective experience in which the therapist is humble, apologizes, explains himself, and, sh and truly shows that he cares. In regular life, often when we have these relationship ruptures, people feel too hurt or they're too undifferentiated to come back to it and so they would just rather let it go and they they never talk to each other again well in therapy this is different because therapists are trained hopefully to be able to handle these sort of things well and to be humble and to apologize 
and to see the situation for what it is in that it's a relationship rupture and a, and a therapeutic opportunity, not a reason to reject a client. I also told, told her in the email that given her childhood relational trauma, it was normal for her to have difficulty trusting other people. And it was also normal for her to desperately want someone to, to be tr truly trustworthy for her. There was nothing wrong with her, her reactivity and her desire to connect with her therapist. You know, that's actually very, very healthy for her. And she emailed me back after that. And she says, thanks, Kirk. I really appreciate your response. Yes, I really cared about our relationship and hadn't realized how much until recently. I could physically feel the pain in my heart when thinking about the situation, which isn't common for me because I try not to develop meaningful relationships with, with other people. I think I will write a letter to him explaining my feelings and thoughts and email it to him. Or should I see if he wants to reschedule and talk about it and then talk face to face? I am so scared he will simply ignore what I have to say. If he does, I don't know how I'll react, but I think it's worth a shot. And you are right. This is an experience I can learn from. Thanks so much. Okay. So th this, this email was actually a while ago, and uh, I emailed her this morning asking if she had an update, and she hasn't gotten back to me because she's probably at work or something. But I, uh, So I don't know what she decided to do, and I'm very curious. So if you're the anonymous patron that wrote in, uh, please let me know how you're doing and, and what happened. I, I hope things turned out well. My suspicion is is that they did. However, I just have to say there are some signs that, that the therapist might not be great. There are, uh, I, given what she said, there's, I would say, perhaps a 10% chance that this therapist doesn't know how to handle this sort of situation. And again, that's pretty low, 10%. I would there's a lot more signs that this therapist knows how to handle the situation, uh, meaning that he wanted to investigate her anxiety further beyond the cognitive psychoeducational part of it, which is what they started with. You know, she originally came into therapy talking about anxiety and they worked on that because that's what she wanted to work on. But then after that uh, showed improvement, he offered to her, well, Perhaps your anxiety is coming from somewhere else, somewhere deeper, and we're going to have, you know, would you like to talk about that? And that's going to take a while. The fact that he brought this up indicates that in all likelihood, he has the conceptualization of humans that is acknowledging the sort of things that will help him get through this relationship rupture meaning that he values relationship ruptures. He, he understands counter-transference. He understands transference. He understands how people can be traumatized relationally. He understands how people can be triggered. He understands corrective experiences in therapy. So that is my guess. But there are a couple signs that he doesn't, particularly given the way that she talks about him, which is potentially distorted because of transference. But... There's a, you know, she was saying that he was becoming increasingly frustrated that she wasn't taking action. It's very common in my experience for particularly novice therapists, but also experienced therapists that exist outside of the 
relational uh, systemic types of therapies. He was perhaps, and this is all through her eyes. So if we asked him, we might, he might say, no, I wasn't frustrated. I think she just thought I was frustrated, but, but she was perceiving him as getting increasingly frustrated with the fact that she was not leaving her boyfriend and that she was continuing to smoke pot. She even said something like, I know I'm not supposed to smoke pot when I'm in therapy, but blah, blah, blah. And this is an old notion. It's a notion I remember learning in graduate school, and it's a notion that's still being told to young therapists, which is if someone is is in the throes of an addiction, you cannot treat them because in you're actually enabling the the addiction by not terminating with them. And that was, that was something I was taught. And that was something actually that was adamantly taught to me when I was in graduate school in the nineties and from supervisors in the community and this sort of thing. Essentially the idea is, is that when say, let's take an extreme example. Let's say someone is, using heroin every day, and they're quite intoxicated throughout the day. Well, if they come in and they want to talk about their relationships or their marriage or something, while being an active opiate user or heroin user, then it's going to be hard for that person to get any better because they're intoxicated and they're not fully present and they might not remember certain things that you're doing in therapy and for the therapist to just participate in this, you know, fruitless endeavor of, of relationship therapy while this person is engaging in, in ongoing addict, addiction is, is one, at the very least, useless and not in the client's best interest. But at worst, it's actually a, a tacit approval of the client's self-destructive behavior. Now, there's a lot of philosophical problems to this point of view. One is is that the client cannot get better while they're in an active addiction, which is highly debatable and not demonstrated by, by the empirical evidence. There's some data that will point in that direction. But, but when we come down to marijuana, I mean, if people use – I know plenty of clients – I mean, I'm in Seattle for crying out loud. It's legal here. People can smoke as much as they want. And I know a lot of people, regardless of whether it's legal or not, there are plenty of people who smoke pot every day. Plenty of people who drink a couple glasses of wine every night. Does that mean that they can't benefit from therapy? No, that's ridiculous. If someone I know, I've known clients that were active opiate users, whether they were using methadone or or, you know, Percocet illegally, uh, I absolutely saw them make improvements in therapy. So this idea, to some extent, was, I think, and I have no data for this, but if I, you know, just the vibe I, I get when I hear this sort of advice is that when you have people in chemical dependency, that's a, in the past and to to the most, you know, to to the great extent, and even today, chemical dependency, substance abuse, substance abuse treatment is a very separate field than my field of psychotherapy and psychology. 
although it really should be one big field. And it's starting to be that. They're starting to work together in dual diagnosis uh, situations. But the uh, thing is that for a lot of those, for a lot of chemical dependency people, they will you know, wisely assert that until the, until a person gets sober, it's really hard to make your life any better. And to work on other things is to some extent being in denial of the real problem. You know, if you have, if you've been shot by a gun in the stomach and you have a hangnail and you walk into the hospital and you say, I'm sorry, can you fix my hangnail for the doctor to ignore the gaping wound in your stomach and treat your and treat your hangnail is irresponsible, right? Or at the very least, just weird. And so that's what chemical dependency people will say. However, when you actually take into consideration the full breadth of human experience and the full breadth of addiction, for that matter, it gets a lot more nuanced than that. And, you know, where do we draw the line? Someone is addicted to cigarettes, is that okay that they come to therapy before they quit smoking cigarettes? It's many of my clients, again, Seattle, addicted to caffeine. Should we not provide therapy to them for that? A lot of it gets wrapped up in a lot of moralism, in my opinion. It's as if to say, well, if you're smoking pot every day, you're a broken human being. There's something wrong with you. You're, you're inherently unhealthy, and therefore you need to address that gaping wound in your stomach before we work on this small little things on, you know, like a hangnail. But, and, you know, there, for some situations, that's absolutely true. And I, as a therapist, will run into situations like that and will absolutely work with people on that. I won't terminate with them. I won't say, get out of my office, come back to me when you're sober. But, but I'll definitely be talking with them. So, you know, how's your, how's your use going? You know, let's talk about you. Have you thought about going to AA meetings? Have you thought about going to an inpatient treatment? You know, cause it could really benefit you. You know, I, I really hammer on it, but I don't terminate with the person because I might be the only person that they're talking to and I need to keep that connection with them. But more importantly, it's important to recognize that a lot of people are substance abusers and addicts because they are suffering from a psychological issue and the substance abuse and the addiction is just a symptom of that. That's in my view. And according to some emerging empirical evidence, the that's true. 90 plus percent of the time when you experience someone who's struggling with ongoing addiction, the, the, they can that person cannot get better until some psychological issue is dealt with. Whether that means they do it after sobriety and after they attain a sobriety, then they work on something and then that helps them to maintain their sobriety or they work on that issue before they become sober. It doesn't matter. For instance, if someone like this anonymous patron that writes in has been emotionally terrified by their father as a child and feels emotionally neglected by their family, that is a very, very traumatic thing for people to go through and will affect your neurons. You know, it's a somewhat of a popular psych thing to say at this point, but, but it's, you know, there's a lot of evidence to that and it makes total sense to me when you are developing your, your brain's developing, right? And as you're growing up, if you're experiencing a particular kind of thing, then your brain adapts to that thing. And 
one of the things that happens as you're adapting to all this emotional turmoil is ways of escaping and ways of, of going into denial and ways of, of trying to reduce the uh, stress in your body. Uh, and, and you also don't trust other people. So instead of going to other people for help, you turn to substances because they will work. They will carry with them a lot of side effects. Like if you're smoking pot all the time, you're going to have perhaps some increase of depression. Your, your memory isn't so great. Obviously, it's not good for your lungs. There are some personality things that might happen. You're not exactly present all the time. Maybe your motivation. You know, there's, there's lots of possible side effects. It doesn't happen for everyone. But, but uh, what it will do what marijuana will do is it will help you cope with the stress and with the triggers that you often get in relationships. As this anonymous patron goes through her life, she is frequently being triggered by her boyfriend who is similar to her father. This is going to make her feel very uncomfortable and very unsafe and very stressed out and depressed and anxious. And Without some way of coping with that, she could fall apart. And marijuana is actually, on the scale of things, a very low self-destructive, you know, it's a lesser self-destructive thing that, that she could do. Drinking is worse because it carries with it a lot more destruction. Heroin is worse, you know, as well. Cocaine, meth. Pot is is one of the least destructive things you can do as a way of coping. It's definitely not a great thing, and it does deny the person the opportunity to heal to some extent. But if if you've ever been through a time like this where PTSD or childhood relational trauma like this, you understand that it's not as, it's not as simple as just saying, well, I'm just going to cope with it. I'm just going to deal with it. It's not that simple. The body and the mind and the the spirit is so overwhelmed that it needs something to numb itself, and pot will do that for many people. So, so it, it was a jag down that road. And what I so my comment is getting back to the original uh, thesis here, which is perhaps the therapist isn't such a great therapist because he might be spouting that kind of stuff. He might be getting frustrated with her regarding her continuing to smoke pot instead of quitting. He, he, you know, she, she, in her email, it, it, she didn't say this directly, but there, there were signs that he might be saying to her, look, and until you stop smoking pot, I'm not, it's, it's going to be impossible for us to move forward. And I'm getting a little frustrated with you that you're not, that you're not stopping. Uh, and, you know, if I feel like I'm working harder than you are here, you know, you got to take some steps to quit or, or, or you got to. And the other thing that it seems that he might have been attached to the therapist was her leaving her boyfriend. Again, if we talk to the therapist, he could say, no, 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 I'm 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 not attached to that. I'm fine. But the client seemed to think I was upset at her, but I wasn't. So that's certainly possible. But there's some signs of that there. So. Again, my my thesis is that the uh, therapist, in all likelihood, ninety nine or ninety percent chance, the therapist is completely trustworthy. And if the anonymous patron goes to this therapist and says, you know, everything that she's told me, 
the therapist will likely react very well and it will likely be a wonderful opportunity for a corrective experience for the anonymous patron to have to have someone truly care and to have someone apologize for for what they did for for getting frustrated or making her feel hurt that you know is a wonderful thing to to have happen something i've seen happen in therapy all the time and it's one of the reasons why i wanted to be a therapist there's so many different kinds of things you can do to help people in the world but it's it's such a wonderful thing to be that person in someone's life who really thinks about the other person and and really takes the time and the effort to care about that person and and really takes the time to apologize when you've done something wrong without a bunch of caveats like, well, I'm sorry that you feel that way <laughs> or I'm sorry that I did that, but, you know, I would never have done that if you hadn't have frustrated me that whole time. You know, the only reason why I was such a jerk in, ther- in session as your therapist was because you refused to leave your boyfriend. You know, there's people have a hard time apologizing fully and and in therapy, good therapists are trained and know how to apologize sincerely, not not acting or not going through the motions, but being sincere about an apology. So anyway, let me talk a little bit about what my conceptualization is of the relationship rupture itself that the anonymous patron seems to be describing. For, for those who grow up with relational trauma, such as the patron here, they will often seek therapy as a way of healing the wounds that they incurred during childhood. It's very common for people with uh, childhood emotional uh, abuse, neglect uh, like this to eventually find themselves in therapy for one reason or another. And this this patron exhibited many of the common experiences for clients with severe relational trauma. Uh, and I've seen it so many times. It's it's it. Everyone is different. Every every human being is unique. Every client is unique. But the syndrome of relationship trauma that she's experienced, abandonment, uh, trust issues, uh, the abuse uh, emotionally that she experienced, this this ongoing relationship trauma between her and her father, and to some extent her mother, and maybe her whole family, I don't know, ha- will create a, a very common syndrome with a lot of commonalities. And I will describe those for you right here. One is seeking therapy uh, for anxiety. These people will often come into therapy saying that they suffer from quote-unquote anxiety. They, they definitely do have anxiety. It's, it's not a lie that they are saying, but it's, it's much easier to ask for help for something called anxiety than it is for asking help for relational wounds or childhood abuse wounds or for worries about one's own self-worth. People with this syndrome often suffer from extreme self-esteem problems, uh, understandably, given the way they were treated. And they know they have low self-esteem, but to ask for help regarding that is, is more vulnerable than, they're, than they feel comfortable with, again, because they have trouble trusting other people, naturally, because they were treated in a very untrustworthy way. And so they won't come in saying, I have trouble with something uh, with my self-esteem because that's very vulnerable. 
And in some ways they worry that people will laugh at them, even though a therapist would never laugh at that. But that, that doesn't mean that clients don't worry about that to some extent. So they're much more likely to say something like anxiety. I had a, a client once come in with this syndrome that asked for help with her parenting. And then once we were done working on her parenting skills, she later revealed that she had all of these relationship wounds from her childhood that she wanted to work on. And we worked on those for many years. Okay, so so that's one. Number two is they will often have, in the beginning, a very strong positive reaction to therapy. She said, and I quote, the first few months were great. That's what she said. The thing is, is because they've had a lifetime of being thirsty, just desperately thirsty for someone to be stable enough and caring enough to sustain a relationship with them that feels good because they're, they're so desperate for that because everyone wants that. But for, for people who aren't treated this way, their, their thirst is satiated from day one. For people with this syndrome, they, they are chronically thirsty for this sort of relationship. It's a human need to be loved, to be safe, to have someone that you can trust. It's a human need to have that. And to be denied that makes them so thirsty that when they're finally satiated with that glass of water called therapy from a therapist who truly cares, then they feel extremely positive about that. Imagine, you know, you're not thirsty and you drink a little bit of water where you're like, yeah, you know, water, big deal. Now imagine you haven't drank water for a few days and someone gives you a tiny little, you know, Dixie cup with, with water in it. It's going to feel like ambrosia from the gods. And it's similar for people with this syndrome. And so when they enter a therapy, they will often feel extremely positive and, and, and say, my God, you're such a good therapist. I'm so glad I'm in therapy with you. And, and, you know, I, I, I'm so happy to be here and I can't wait for therapy. Can we meet three times a week? This is the experience. And it, you know, it makes total sense because they've been denied something their whole life and, and they naturally, they naturally need that. And so therapy can feel very positive. And so she has that sign too. The third sign is that she struggles with trusting others, which again, makes sense as I demonstrated earlier. Number four is that they often will struggle with addictions. When you are suffering from chronic issues of feeling hurt and angry and abandoned and alone and worthless, then it makes sense to use some kind of substance or anything to cover that up, whether it's through sex or, or pot or something else. It's, it's a way of escaping that, those difficult feelings. Number five, uh, she's showing a tendency to uh, de developing difficult relationships. Now, I don't know about her other relationships, but her current relationship, according to her, is difficult for her. And there's a lot of reasons why people with this syndrome will tend to create uh, difficult relationships. One, they might be trying to recreate their past. There's various reasons why we defensively recreate our past, whether it's good for us or bad for us. Maybe it's, you know, we're comfortable with something. Uh, what do they call it? Something like the devil, you know, that kind of thing. 
also some you know people with this uh, syndrome they sometimes not uh, they don't have enough self esteem or self worth to wait for a good match if if anyone comes along and loves them they believe wow you might be the only person on this planet who would possibly love me because i'm inherently unlovable so i better hold on to you and uh, that person might not be a good match for them, but they don't care because they just want someone to love them and they don't believe someone else would love them. And so that they'll settle for someone that isn't so great for them. Uh, there's various other defense mechanisms that'll kick in for, uh, that will motivate someone to have uh, not so wonderful relationships. And another uh, reason that she exhibited that might be possible is that Sometimes people with this syndrome will, because they feel so uh, emotionally dysregulated, they will often be attracted to someone that seems to be very emotionally, quote unquote, strong. And men are often socialized this way. So if a, if a man, if a boy is emotionally neglected, he is socialized to stuff that down and to act very, quote unquote, strong, to act like he doesn't care to not ask for help, to be independent. But of course, on the inside, he's, he's a roiling mess of emotions. But on the outside, he's appearing as though he doesn't have any emotions. And so sometimes these sorts of men will be very attractive to women that have this sort of syndrome. Because it's not a conscious thing per se, but people with this syndrome will say, well, I'm kind of an emotional mess, so I, I, I need a man who is strong. And I really am not attracted to men who talk about their feelings all the time because those, those men are wussies. I, I need a strong man. That's, that's who I'm looking for. But the, uh, the, the sort of irony or the, the, you know, the tragedy is that a lot of these men who, quote-unquote, appear masculine and strong are actually suffering quite a bit on the inside. And when they are triggered, uh, when their own emotional relational traumas are triggered, they will react quite poorly in the relationship and not uh, be very empathetic. And so uh, that's, you know, that's the tragedy. Okay, number six, after the honeymoon period uh, in therapy, the uh, clients that have the, this sort of relational trauma will often start exhibiting quote unquote attitude toward their therapist. She talked about this. She's like, I'm, I'm not the easiest client uh, to have. And I, I exhibit attitude toward my client, toward my therapist sometimes. And the, the conceptualization of this is as the relationship develops, the client with these extreme emotional and relational traumas uh, will start to exhibit the vulnerabilities of those traumas and, and start to react from those traumas. And those traumas will get triggered in therapy. Even if the, even if the therapist is perfect, the, just the nature of the relationship will trigger the client because it's vulnerable and scary to be close to someone who can hurt you. And so even if the therapist does nothing to actually, you know, uh, be mean or discounting or unempathetic, or even if the therapist is perfect, the, the client, because of their, their reasonable fear of being abandoned and hurt by someone close to them, because literally perhaps everyone in their life has hurt them in the past in this way, 
just by the sheer fact that they're getting close to someone will scare them and trigger them. And then that will uh, cause a, a hurt feeling for, from the client. And when you're hurt, you get angry and you get angry at the person who hurt you. And that might manifest in what this client is calling attitude. And so it's all, it's all very normal in that way. And for therapists that know what they're doing, they know how to interpret that quote unquote attitude. They, they know that it comes from their, uh, from the client's relational trauma being triggered and not to take it personally and to use it as an opportunity to deepen the relationship and further the healing. Number seven, the, uh, anonymous patron wrote in another common feature of someone in therapy who has relational childhood trauma. And that is, is that the therapist will likely experience extreme countertransference. It's very normal for clients with relational trauma from their childhood to uh, create a relationship with the therapist in which the therapist experiences a lot of difficult countertransference, meaning that the, the therapist might start feeling frustrated. The therapist might start feeling inadequate and worthless. The therapist might feel judged or the therapist just might start freaking out from anxiety. As a therapist myself, I've had all those experiences in spades when it comes to clients like this. But for therapists that have been around the block a few times, they understand that it is countertransference and it's not a reflection of quote unquote reality. And that with management and with wisdom and with consultation, supervision and your own therapy and your own self-care, you can withstand those kinds of inducements and not fall prey to them and manage to hold on and be a helpful therapist in the moment rather than uh, reacting from those unhelpful feelings. Now, I can't tell from the email from the patron how the therapist managed his countertransference. There are signs that he managed it quite well because they were in therapy for a couple years without uh, much of an incident. So my guess is, is he likely had countertransference prior that he managed okay. But there are signs that he that he also wasn't managing it well because she seemed to think he was very frustrated. And, and it sounds like he even uh, discussed his frustration with her. Not to say that that's a sign he wasn't coping, but it's hard to know. Um, my guess is, is that he's mostly able to, at least mostly able to, if not fully able to handle his own countertransference. But again, I, it's hard for me to know. But again, the common feature for a client like this is that they will create a lot of countertransference for the therapist. There are other syndromes that do not create a lot of countertransference for the therapist. And um, there are other syndromes that, that perhaps create more countertransference in the therapist. But um, uh, so that's one of those things you get to know as as a, as a therapist, particularly when you work with the sort of clients I work with, because I don't work with severe mentally ill people as, or chronically mentally ill people uh, is what they sometimes call them, you know, schizophrenia, severe bipolar, severe depression, um, this severe OCD. I don't I don't tend to treat people like that. I tend to treat people with relationship issues, with uh, trauma issues and I tend to get a lot of clients who have childhood relational trauma. And uh, as a result, I tend to, you know, have a lot of clients who cause me to feel a lot of these sorts of feelings. You know, you, 
you, you, through the interaction of transference, countertransference, which is totally normal, you as a therapist are, are going to start feeling feelings. And a relational psychodynamic therapist, intersubjective uh, therapist, tends to be uh, well-versed in the, um, you know, the, the ways in which we feel and, and how to cope with that. Anyway, number eight, uh, therapists not handling it well. It's, it's normal for, for clients who have childhood relational traumas to cause situation in therapy with a therapist in which the therapist has difficulty coping. I, as a therapist in my most difficult moments, many of them have been with clients who have had childhood relational traumas where I've been triggered myself. I'm a human being and I don't react so well and I don't react in a therapeutic way. And I, I do my best to make up for it and apologize for it later on, but I'm human and I, I make mistakes. I'm not always perfect. And so it, it looks as though that happened with this therapy. Again, hard to tell because it's through her eyes, but it, it seems to uh, be there. Number nine, relationship ruptures. As I've been talking about uh, before, the, when you have childhood relational traumas as a client, you will tend to create situations with the therapist, uh, with the therapist participating in it, by the way, in which relationship ruptures will occur. And that's all normal. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. Number 10, uh, client suddenly terminating. This is also a common thing that I've seen with many of my clients who have childhood relational traumas is they will terminate with me suddenly. They will have, will have a difficult session. I will do my best to try to make things go well, but sometimes it just doesn't work out or, or sometimes I don't even notice that things went badly because I'm not paying attention or something. And then I'll suddenly get an email or a phone call or something saying that they don't, they don't want to come to therapy anymore. And I surmise that a relationship rupture has occurred and I made a mistake or something went wrong and I will reach out to them and we'll re-engage and repair that relationship. So it's, it's again, totally normal. I mean, I, I would say at the top of my head of the, I don't know, the, the, probably the first five people that come to mind that I worked with who had, you know, severe relational traumas with their, with their parents, emotional traumas with their, with their parents they all terminated with me in the middle of treatment and uh, it, as a result of a relationship rupture. It happens, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. And that's maybe my big point to this patron who's writing in, is this situation is, is, re, is difficult and very distressing for everyone, probably for the therapist too. But it is totally normal for someone with her childhood to have happened to her. It, she she got triggered and she tried her best in the moment, even though she was flooded with emotions and distress. She tried her best. She went to therapy. She, she was trying to trust him. Uh, but you know, because she was triggered so much, she had a difficult time trusting him. He was trying to reach out to her. You know, things were difficult in that moment. It was a difficult time. And she left the therapy just, you know, feeling as though he didn't care. Now, in all likelihood, he very much does care. But when she got home, she just thought, why am I dealing with this? Uh, he doesn't care about me. I, I, I don't want to see him anymore. And so 
I'm going to email him and I'm going to terminate because this doesn't feel good. This feels horrible to me. I feel like I'm being rejected all over again. And therapy is not supposed to feel that way. And so it's totally normal in that moment to be like, fuck it, I'm done. (laughs) Um, It's also uh, an opportunity, like I said, for repair to happen and for, for a very deep, very healing experience to occur. And I really hope that the patron takes advantage of that. And I really hope the therapist takes advantage of that too, obviously. Number 11, the 11th sign uh, and common experience for someone with childhood relational trauma and neglect to experience in therapy is that after suddenly terminating, she felt very ashamed for terminating. This is also very common. I, I, I've, I've received emails from listeners talking about this exact experience, and I've worked with many clients like this too. Again, because they're so thirsty for someone to care for them and for somebody, please don't abandon me and don't leave me, which is totally understandable given their childhood experience. And since they're uh, so, you know, they want that so much and they deserve it and that the therapist is being that person. And then when that turns on them and they uh, terminate with the therapist, the client naturally feels ashamed. Uh, not it's, they shouldn't feel ashamed, meaning that there's nothing wrong with what they did because it's totally normal given their wounds from their childhood. But they uh, they they naturally feel ashamed because one they stuff they suffer from self esteem issues anyway, but also because they don't really want to terminate. What they really want to do is have the therapist repair the relationship. They want to repair the relationship with their therapist. They really want that. And the client will often feel ashamed and guilty for having sent an email terminating because they, they feel like they shouldn't have done that. They feel like, Oh, I should have given it another chance. And I really want uh, this relationship to, to be better again. And I feel like I really screwed it up. They'll feel very ashamed of it, but they won't know what to do because they feel so vulnerable that they will, they're afraid of reaching out because they're afraid that the therapist won't respond well, which, you know, could happen. I don't know this therapist. The therapist could be terrible for all I know. I don't know. Number 12, the client wants to reconnect uh, after the relationship rupture, as I was saying earlier. And 13, the client reaches out in a passive manner, hoping that the therapist will follow. This is not always the case, but it's a common feature of someone who has childhood relational trauma in that she reached out to him by saying, uh, I, I'm terminating. She, you know, she said, I sent an email saying I, I terminated and he hasn't gotten back to me yet. Well, in all likelihood, she didn't say something like, I terminate, but I want to talk about this. Please contact me. You know, she probably just said, I, you know, I'm, I'm canceling our next appointment and I think I'm done with therapy or something. You know, I don't, I don't know what she wrote, but that that's a common thing that, that I've seen. And the behind that message, there's this passive hope that the therapist will email back and say, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. What happened? Why are you terminating? Let's talk about it. I'm sorry if I did anything uh, during our last session to make you feel like I didn't care because I do care. And I actually will send out those emails or I'll make those phone calls because it's all true. And 
and I also know that with some clients, that's when they terminate early with me, that's what they want from me therapeutically. And, you know, as their therapist, it's my job to intuit that and to figure out what the best response is, even if from the outside, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But anyway, so it's, it's common for clients when they do terminate or around things like this to, to be passive. It's also possible that that final session was a passive attempt of trying to get the therapist to step forward and lean in. You know, she said that she was having kind of a rough time, I think even going into that last session. And when she sat down, she, she just didn't feel quite connected. She didn't feel quite right. And all she could do was sit there and, and cry. And my guess is, is that from an, from an early point in the session, if not before the session, because it sounded like the, the tension between the two of them was building over time. She went into the session, I think, hoping that her silence and her crying would communicate to the therapist that what she really wanted was the therapist to notice she was suffering, to care about her, and to perhaps stop pressuring her to leave her boyfriend and stop pressuring her to, to, to quit using pot. Not because she wanted to necessarily be with her boyfriend and smoke pot all the time, but because she wanted to feel as though the therapist truly accepted her unconditionally. And she didn't know how to ask for that because she might not have known that's what she wanted or she might not have uh, been, you know, she might not have had the resources self-esteem wise to be so vulnerable to ask for such a thing. Or maybe she worried that the therapist wouldn't react well. Again, because she has trouble trusting people, again, due to her childhood relational trauma, it's totally natural to to not trust others when everyone has been uh, hurtful throughout your entire life. And so... Uh, it's it's very possible that that final session was this passive attempt at trying to get the therapist to to see her, but she wasn't being very direct about it. And uh, again, that's another common feature for someone who has childhood relational traumas. Again, because you know it's it's the thing of you. Uh, I don't know. You're you're in a situation where you don't trust your. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to come up with an analogy, and whenever I do, I never know what's gonna come out of my mouth. So let's see what comes out of my mouth. You uh, are at work and you want to raise, but you your boss and you don't like each other, and you don't think your boss likes you very much. So you want to raise, and your boss is the one that's who's gonna give you the raise. And you also have had a lot of conflict with your boss. But again, you really want that raise. So instead of going to your boss and just saying, hey, um, I'd really like to talk about a raise. I feel like I'm doing a great job here. Da-da-da. Um, is, you know, what do we got to do to move forward and uh, get me a promotion or a raise or something? Well, if, if, you, you know, if you have a really bad relationship with your boss, you might predict that that kind of conversation will not go so well. You, you worry that your boss will yell at you and say, are you kidding me? You're terrible. So um, what you might resort to are passive measures, which you might say something like, oh, my car's in the shop. Boy, I wish I could afford a better car. Or, man, you know, I'm so stressed out because I don't have enough vacation time and and I, I have to work this like second job just to make ends meet. <laughs> and, you know, these are passive ways you're, you're, you're being kind of direct, but, but 
but mostly indirect, about your desire for a raise to your boss without being direct. And when you worry about a relationship and you, when you worry about another person responding well, you tend to, people tend to resort to passive communication because they naturally worry about the other person not responding well. And so uh, it's possible that this patron as a client, when she went into that, that last session, that that was what she was experiencing. Again, I don't know, but uh, it's just a, just a, a suspicion I have. And number 14 is that uh, a sign, the 14th sign that I hear in this email of uh, that is common to a therapeutic situation in which the client has childhood relational trauma is that the therapist is confused and doesn't know what to do. This is a very common countertransference experience for a therapist to have when they are in the, when they are in the middle of having triggered their client who has childhood relational traumas. It's a a very dysregulating, disorienting situation as a therapist, and you might start getting attacked or you might feel as though you've really screwed things up. And as a therapist, you'll get very confused and and you might get desperate and you, you don't know what to do to get out of it. And there might not be a way out of it, honestly. And so... Um, so there's some signs of that. Again, I haven't talked to the therapist, so there's no way to know, but there's some signs that the therapist was confused and didn't know what to do, which is totally normal. All right. Well, that does it for that. And I, I really hope I keep checking my email to see if that patron will write in and I'm checking email to see if there's an update and she has not written in, unfortunately. Okay. But if, if this is you, let me know how things went because you wrote in a while ago and, and uh, there's, you know, either you, you said you were going to write him a letter or an email or something explaining your experience. And uh, I'm wondering if you did that and I'm wondering what his response was to that. I hope to God that he responded well if you sent a letter like that. I, I hope he sent the letter and I hope even more that when you sent the letter, he responded well, because like I said, this is a true opportunity for you to heal from your childhood wounds, which you deserve to have happen. You deserve to have your therapist care for you in the way that you deserve, which is with empathy, with understanding, with forgiveness, and with asking for an apology or with, with offering an apology and asking for forgiveness. You deserve your therapist to apologize to you and say, I'm sorry for making you feel as though I didn't care. I'm sorry that I didn't know what was happening. I'm sorry that I got overwhelmed myself and became too frustrated with you. I'm sorry I became attached to you leaving your boyfriend. I just really care about you and I don't want you to be in a tough spot. But at the same time, I shouldn't have been so pressuring of you. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You deserve to have that happen to you because you're a human being on this planet, number one. And, And number two, you particularly deserve it because you have been treated so poorly throughout your entire life. If anyone deserves to be treated well and deserves their therapist to apologize, it's you. 
And so, God, I hope that the therapist reacted well. Because the flip side is, if the therapist did not react well, then holy crap. And this is why therapists need to be trained well, is particularly around this sort of childhood relational trauma syndrome issue. Because when you screw things up, if, say, she, she writes this letter to him, and he just doesn't reply, or he says, well... Actually, my client load is, you know, he sends some lame excuse of just like, oh, I'm sorry, I already filled your spot. I hope you do well. See you later. If he does something like that, it really can become the last nail of the coffin in the coffin for a client like this. Because if a therapist can't act in a trustworthy way, then then surely you can give up on anyone acting in a empathic, unconditional uh, regard sort of way, because if a ther- you're paying a therapist to do this sort of thing, and if they can't do it, then surely my spouse isn't going to do it, my family members aren't going to do it, my coworker, surely the human race cannot be trusted. Whereas the flip side is, is if you, as a therapist, if you can, if you can exhibit that extreme acceptance and that extreme compassion, then that instills a hope in the client that, wait a second, maybe other people have that capacity too, because they do have that capacity. And the client just doesn't believe that because their experiences has told them otherwise. And so it is a why in the road for a lot of clients. And it's one that as a therapist, I believe I was put on this planet to navigate that I can provide that healing experience, that corrective experience for that client in a way that they've never experienced before, that I can put aside my ego, that I can interpret things in a way that makes it so I don't take things personally, that I can manage my countertransference, that I can remain humble, that I can tell people, you know, what do I know? You know, uh, I, I thought I wasn't hurting your feelings, but you had your feelings hurt by me and that is that's your experience and my god i'm sorry for that and i was wrong for doing whatever it was that i did to hurt your feelings i am wrong for doing that and i'm really gonna think about that i'm you know i didn't know i did that but i'm i'm gonna really think hard about what i did and really try not to do that again and really try to understand why that hurt your feelings because i really do not want to hurt your feelings I have that power and that calling and that mission in life in a way that other people do not have the capacity for in their profession. Not that they can't, not that they don't have empathy because other people do. But when you go to a physician, uh, the physician can only provide a certain kind of help, right? Sometimes they can provide emotional help corrective experiences but as a but as therapists this is our bread and butter man this is what what our profession differentiates us from everything else a lot of therapies today are being pushed toward more psychoeducational models more skill-based models let's talk about skills let's talk about measurable outcomes and this is all great believe me i'm 100% on board with that but i'm also 100% on board with what we can provide that other people can't. I mean, a coach can provide the same kind of quote unquote therapy 
in which you talk about skills or a self-help book can provide that. But what a self-help book and a coach cannot provide is this deep relational healing experience that can happen in therapy with another human being and, and with a therapist that knows how to manage their kind of transference, knows how to interpret transference, knows how to differentiate in situations, knows how to truly care about a client in the face of difficulty and get through the difficult moments. Those are wonderful opportunities and uh, this patron deserves that and I hope that that's what happens. So let me know. All right. Well, that does it for this episode of Psychology in Seattle. If you haven't already become a, become a patron, do so. We just had someone this morning become a patron. I will name that person's name. That person is, let's see, wait, Leslie, patron Leslie, just just uh, just pledged this morning. So thank you, patron Leslie. And we have Patron Patty and Andre and Mara and Britton and Lee and Megan and Claire and Brittany and Carlos and Hannah and Bradley and Audrey and Rebecca. Thank you so much, all of you, for becoming patrons. You guys kick ass. If you haven't yet, do so now. Go to your computer. Become a patron. Become a patron. Okay, that does it for the episode. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself and other people. And be that healing force when that why in the road occurs because we all deserve it.